walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 75. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. It's December 2023, so another year is almost in the books. And what a year it has been on the Camino. It's easy to forget, and maybe impossible to forget. Just a few years ago, we were all locked down. The Camino was shut down, and there were lots of concerns circling around what would be left standing when normal, whatever that looked like, finally returned. Well, here we are. With almost certainly more than a half million pilgrims and walkers on the Camino in 2023. Add up the other Camino-inspired walking and cycling routes around Europe and beyond, and that number would obviously push much higher. Based on the numbers alone, it would be easy to argue that we've entered a second golden age of pilgrimage. Those numbers, of course, bring challenges and complications, and this year illustrates that fact as well. I wanted to take a step back and review some of the headlines that stood out in 2023, and talk with a couple of people who are immersed in Camino discourse about those developments, talking points, and persistent concerns. Now, if you want discourse immersion, there's one place to go. The moderators of discussion groups and forums who are on the front lines in navigating some of these thornier conversations. This led me to Lori, a.k.a. Peregrina2000, of Champaign, Illinois, USA, a longtime moderator in Ivar's Camino Forum, as well as Paul Garland, currently of Moratinos, Spain, who moderates the massive Camino de Santiago All Roots Facebook group. In the discussion that follows, we talked about the general state of pilgrimage discourse, the pushback of some albergues against luggage shipment, the perceived overcrowding crisis in May, the local unhappiness with tourist crowds in Santiago de Compostela, and the recent controversy surrounding the Cruz de Ferro, along with a bunch of other stuff. Along the way, we confirm some concerns, brush away others, and even arrive at some positive developments worth celebrating. It's the year in Camino 2023. Hope you enjoy. Paul and Lori, thanks for talking with me. Our goal here is to try to unpack some of the developments on the Camino in 2023 and where things might be trending moving forward and maybe sorting out fact from fiction or to kind of distinguish things that are actually real and consequential from matters of unsubstantiated perception or exaggeration. And, you know, we're going to fully acknowledge the limits of our own perspectives as well, that we are three people. The two of you are deeply immersed in pilgrimage discourse, being moderators on forum and Facebook group, and then also Paul being situated on the Camino. So you both have a ton of insight into what's happening, but we are just three people taking our best shot at what's happening, and we're, we're not able to predict the future. But I'm glad to have you here because I do think that the two of you have a ton of insight into all of this. Lori, do you want to get us started? What's one topic from 2023 that you think is important and worth talking about? Well, first of all, I'm one of five or six moderators on Ivar's English language forum, and that's really my sole connection with the pilgrim discourse. But I think if looking back over the year, it's probably the case that the most contentious and divisive issue that we have seen developing is this battle between those who call themselves pilgrims and don't want others to call themselves pilgrims because they either take a bus for a stage, cherry pick stages, have their luggage carried, things like that. So the forum has developed this rule that we're just not going to talk about this anymore. I'm not sure that's the right way to go. In a perfect world, this would be something that we would discuss because I think all of us have very clear ideas about what is happening to the Camino because of the huge increase in people who I'm not going to call them tourists, but people who walk 
because of the bucket list phenomenon. That's really more what I see is that the Camino has now become something that people put on their list, like climbing Kilimanjaro, going to Machu Picchu. This is just another one of those bucket lists. And for me, though I don't pretend to have the answer or to want to exclude anyone from the Camino, I think that those people are missing what it was that first drew me to the Camino in the year 2000 and has brought me back every year since then. So I think we're in this difficult position of not wanting to be judgmental and realizing that opening the Camino to people with lower ability levels, more physical challenges is, of course, a good thing. But at the same time, I think there's no doubt that talking to my friends who are albergue owners, that we're just seeing a huge increase in people walking who want to have it all and want it to be beautiful and want it to be perfect and want to have fancy meals and beautiful places to stay. And that's fine, but I'm just not sure that's what the Camino is all about. But I've said all that. I couldn't write any of that on the forum today because it would be be included as a violation of the new rule three. So it's difficult. Paul, does that ring true for you in your context on Facebook? Yes. I'm not often on the forum. I'm more of a presence on Facebook. And we don't have that rule. So I wasn't aware that it's a forbidden topic of conversation. The couple of groups I get involved with, and the big one there, the all groups, we have to remember that there are several hundred new people a day joining. It's got that big. And I think it's become unwieldy now, over 300,000. It hit two days ago, and we're getting almost 500 new people a day. Most of them will be newbies, newbies to Camino World making plans. And if we put up, I'm not an admin, I could have been, but I chose just to be a mod so I can write occasionally provocative things and <laughs> speak my mind so it doesn't appear authoritative. I can just be a, an old git making comments or jokes. We, we have to remember that a lot of people are coming for the first time to a Facebook group, to a Camino de Santiago-related social media platform. And everyone has the same questions when they first come. So we don't have that issue of, okay, this has been discussed and discussed and discussed, packing lists, et cetera, et cetera. And new people come on. They don't know about the search function on Facebook. You can just use the search magnifying glass tool and type in sock or saria or winter, something like that. So we do get a lot, a lot of repeat posts. It's the same as well across the German-speaking Italian Spanish groups that I keep an eye on. And the issue of, as you're saying, Laurie, the tourist, not tourist, but the pleasure walker as opposed to pilgrim, distinction that's another of these five or six posts a day things it normally generates one of two answers a lot of old timers won't even get involved nowadays they let other people do it it falls into two two responses do the camino your own way it doesn't matter or you're a tourist enjoy it don't call yourself a pilgrim it's really what you were saying Laurie, isn't it but we've just got to look let the new people ease themselves into these issues if they want to answer factual stuff or let other people do it and jump in if it's something that's definitely wrong or out of date, as long as we're sure. I think more and more the distinction or the perceived distinction between tourist and pilgrim, you'll see more of that. The tourist element is increasing. I speak of that from first hand. And it is bringing not necessarily problems. There's always problems because like any news channel, it's always something different or bad or tragic that gets the attention. The 99.9% of everything running smoothly, people enjoying it, etc. Finding beds every night. That's all there in the background and happening. So it's only the bad things or perceived bad things that get the attention. For me, the distinction tourist versus pilgrim does not really describe what I think the conflict is. Because when I think of the word pilgrim, I think of 
a person who's going on a religious quest. And that's not what the tourist versus pilgrim debate is about. Because there are many, many thousands of people who go to Santiago by car to revere the bones of St. James and who are on a pilgrimage. Mm. So the problem that I see is that what pilgrim has evolved into meaning is someone who does it the old way when there were no amenities. And I get that. That's how I did it. And that's how I enjoy it. Although I do take my spins at fancy places now and then. But I think that we conflate religious pilgrim with a pilgrim who does it the old time way. And that just makes things very confusing because I I don't think there's anything insulting about saying to someone, take a look at how the Camino is set up. You can take on an incredible personal journey if you strip yourself of the urge to latch on to all these amenities that are at your beck and call. If you don't want to do that, that's on you. But I think you're missing a lot of what the Camino has to offer. So I think the pilgrim word itself is just one that doesn't really describe the conflict. I don't know if I'm making that clear, but Mm -hmm. um, for me, it derails a lot of the threads because look at like Fatima, for instance, Fatima, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims drive into Fatima and they are a hundred times more religious than I am. And they are a hundred times more of a pilgrim than I will ever be. So I don't like the term, but it's what we're stuck with. I've begun to use three different words for people doing physically the same thing, and that's pilgrims, walkers, and tourists. It's an extra layer. Walkers are walkers, and they share quite a few likes and dislikes with the whatever a pilgrim is. Let's not go there too much. So if you think about walkers, because... There's a heck of a lot more tourism in Spain than the Tourigrinos. So just to have that extra category, we're all walkers, even if it's just to the bus stop. While we're on this topic, then let's extend it to something that has become almost a symbol of this tension, which is people carrying their bags or shipping their bags ahead. And Paul, there have been some developments on that front this year. So do you want to talk about those and then... Talk about whether this is just a small, isolated development or maybe the beginning of a larger trend. Sending backpacks ahead and traveling and sending ahead suitcases, two totally different things. Luggage going from A to B is what it's about, but backpack transport and transport of suitcases. As far as I can tell, and I've heard nothing different, There have been no additional, certainly on the French route, no additional accommodations, mainly albergues, who are refusing pilgrims who do not carry their own backpack. You have Gothalmo, one or two others, who, except in very unusual circumstances, won't allow people who haven't carried their own backpack. This year, but right at the beginning, 13 albergues on the Camino Frances Some public ones, mainly association albergues, have said, right, we're just not going to allow walkers, let's call them walkers for now, we're not going to allow walkers who bring suitcases with them, whether they want to wheel them all across the countryside or send them ahead. And most, with one or two strange exceptions, most do send them ahead. So that was introduced 13 on the French route, I can see the reason why, because normally people who have suitcases, they're doing it more from a tourism motive. And if they're looking for low cost accommodation, fair enough, that's what their budget runs to. But the feeling is that they will arrive to the lower cost places first, fill up the beds for walkers, pilgrims who are slower because they're carrying their own things. It's caused quite a few problems. It's getting more known now, the new rulings from these 13 albergues, and people are sending luggage ahead, sending their suitcases ahead, and saying, why? We didn't know 
let us in. We're walking on the route. You're in Alberghi. You're uh, somewhere that's known for putting up pilgrims, walkers, even tourists. It is making life quite difficult for hospital errors. Luckily, the places I've worked, for people we have to say, no, sorry, they're not in one-horse towns with no other options. And, of course, we have discretion. If there's a gaggle of crying kids with parents, yeah, come on in, we can always find them somewhere. But there's always another option. But two or three times a week in the bigger Albergues, we actually get into confrontations with people demanding a bed. We have to say, look, it's uh, the policy, the philosophy of the association that runs these particular Albergues to say no. And people get quite uptight about it. Only once there's been a physical challenge, but quite often they'll ring the Guardia Civil, who then come round if they're free, back us up completely. But, and that always happens when there's other things kicking off in the background as well. Someone's hobbling in, hurt, or the fire alarm's gone off or something. And it detracts from the attention we can give to, and the welcome we can give to the pilgrims. It's an issue, I don't think it's going to become a massive issue more than it is now, because word will get round. But it's there. The number of people with suitcases will increase as the tourist element proportionately increases, and in real numbers it will increase as well. Oh, and just to say, some of these suitcases, they're not little things that you can stow in an overhead rack <laughs> on Ryanair or a low-cost carrier. The biggest I've seen, it needed two of us to carry. Big, pink, it had to be 40 kilos. It was delivered. Now the local carriers know not to deliver to this particular place she could not take it upstairs we weren't going to take it upstairs it was 40 kilos that was the exception but most suitcases are 25 kilos and big they have a real wardrobe inside them three or four pairs of shoes and things for every day of the week and fair enough if you're going on holiday that's all part of your holiday Laurie, what's your sense of how this is playing out from the forum we don't get into size of suitcase when we discuss forum, <laughs> but there has definitely been a huge uptick in people asking about bag transport. That's one of the first questions that many people ask, especially if they're going to the Invierno, the Olvidado, Salvador. They tend to say, you know, well, where's the bag transport? And that sort of blows my mind because I'm not really sure why someone would both simultaneously be attracted to a Camino like the Olvidado with its much lower level of amenities and traffic, and at the same time want their backpack carried. It seems like those two features don't really mix with the same kind of person, but we get it all the time. Just yesterday, there was a post about bag transport on the Invierno, which there is, and people are quite happy with it. But it has become, I think, a flashpoint. It's one of the debates that led to this new rule about not getting into Turagrino versus Peregrino because there were some members, anytime someone said, well, how can I get my back transported? People would say, well, if you're a pilgrim, you don't need to get your back transported. <laughs> so that debate is pretty much gone. And we do provide the information about back transport. But I always like to say, many of these people are compatriots of mine. They're Americans who are used to traveling with big suitcases, with tour companies, you know, sort of being led around. And I think one of the most valuable services that the forum can provide is to give those people a chance to at least consider and think about the option of going alone and doing it on your own. That has really nothing to do with being a pilgrim or a tourist. It has to do with giving yourself a chance to show yourself how much you can do, how competent you are, how self-reliant you are. It's an amazing feeling to wake up every morning and put on your pack and, and get going and know that you're in charge of your day and it's just you and your few belongings that don't mess with your mind. You can just, you know, walk and enjoy and think and revel in the beauty. And not to offer yourself that challenge, I think is, is a real 
tragedy because that's the Camino is one of the few places where those of us who are not through hikers who can't carry our packs and our tents and our food, the Camino is really one of the few places where we can do that, where we can sort of test ourselves and our and show ourselves. And I don't know, maybe this is not something that appeals to a lot of people. Maybe they don't want to see, they don't want to challenge themselves. But I always try to encourage people to maybe give it a try and see what you're capable of, because you may come away realizing that you can do that life is so much more than being led around by the nose with someone carrying your suitcase. And I don't mean to say that in a disparaging way. I know that sounded pretty disparaging, but but I just think treating this like any other organized tour just misses out on what the Camino has mm. that's special for me. I see, so, and I'm sure we've all seen it, so many times we're walking and a tour bus will come through and you can see people thinking, Hmm. And also people who've come back. I've met numbers of people who, first of all, gone on an organized tour. And they said, I can see now. I could have done that by myself. There was no need for it. Now, that's not for everyone. Some people, they need to have the security of arrangements made and a backup if necessary for health problems or from age problems, let's face it. That comes to us, doesn't it? And one day I'll be on a tour. I know I will be. It may not be too far ahead. And I'll probably learn a lot from the tour because some knowledgeable guides as well. But so many people walking, said, oh, I, I was on a tour. And I decided I was going to come back and do it myself. So along with bags, I felt like one of the biggest stories of the year unfolded, especially around May, when there was a ton of panicked discourse about Albergues being strained or overwhelmed, especially on the Camino Frances, but also came up a lot on the Via Podiensis in France. So the gites there being overloaded. And of course, this resulted in all kinds of discourse about you need to reserve ahead really far. The people who are making reservations are ruining the Camino. There isn't enough accommodation. You're going to be stuck sleeping outside. You're going to be taking taxis 30 kilometers to find a place. So is the Camino becoming too crowded? Is the number of pilgrims, walkers, tourists outpacing facilities? What's going on there from your perspective? There is no doubt that there are pressure points and that there are days and moments when the most popular Caminos are people are taking cabs for 10 kilometers or whatever. There's just no doubt about that. And it is true that those who have reserved ahead wind up spending a lot less of their Camino time having to look for places to stay, right? So if you've got it all, you don't sit down every night and spend two hours looking for someplace for tomorrow. But at the same time, I think it's impossible to predict where those pressure points are going to be on any given day, because we hear on the forum, oh, well, I was in Zubiri last night and there was no place. To, well, maybe Zubiri is a clear pressure point, but I was in <laughs> such and such a town where there was no place to stay. And then two days later, well, there was no one here today. So I think, you know, this wave phenomenon is a real one. And I think also that we tend to generalize about, you know, well, if it's bad in Saint Jean, starting out in the beginning of May, it's going to be bad the whole way through. When actually, I think that has pretty well been debunked, that that's just not the case, that there are parts of the Camino in Navarra. I have a good friend who owns an albergue, a private albergue in Navarra. And he said the Navarran government, in fact, last year issued an SOS plan to try to help drum up business on the Camino in Navarra, because all of the albergues were suffering much reduced occupancy rates. So it's a problem of waves and lack of ability to predict what tomorrow is going to look like that I think leads a lot of people to just either reserve it all or just go to a Camino where you don't have to worry about that, which is what I've, yeah. I've tended to do. So, yeah, I, I think we, we get May and September. The forum is loaded with these sort of panic threads about there's no place to say, no place to say. And it turns out that, sure, they're right. There are days when they can't get a place to stay. But I think the common wisdom seems to be 
tell people to reserve, maybe if you're starting in Saint-Jean, reserve up through Pamplona and then let it be. Similarly, I don't know about Saria. I haven't walked from Saria in a long time. So, but I think Saria may be another, Saria to Santiago may be a place where, yeah, you'd be smart to reserve. And then there's always someone on the forum who will point out, I am an hospitalera in a donativo albergue. We do not, or a municipal albergue, we don't take reservations. We are rarely full. You've just got to focus on what's really available. That is the thing. The good side of people or benefit of people choosing to reserve ahead more is that the public albergues, as we say, Laurie, don't accept reservations. So they're going to have more bed space available. Same capacity, more bed space. You were talking about what's become common knowledge now. If, and again, I'll talk about up to a point, the Primitivo, where I work sometimes, but mainly on the French route. Don't start on a Saturday or Sunday, if you can possibly help it. And don't start on the first or the second of the month. It's psychology. Wait for payday. Oh, it's a new month. Let's go. And whatever you do, don't start on the first or the second of the month if that also falls on a Saturday or a Sunday. You'll be squeezed for the first three or four days until it, the wave settles after a few days of slow people, not fall behind, but they're, they're just ambling along behind and the races have gone on. From mid-April now, it's not just May, September, it's mid-April through to the end of May and September and into October, that applies. If you have to, and if your flight saves you $300 or whatever, okay, come on the first and second, but just expect to have to work at it a bit and hunt round. At the end of the day, no one is going to be left in the street. As Monique in the Bureau d'Accord, the welcome office in Saint-Jean says, it's bad for business. As, and I forget her name, the state employee in Roncesvalles, she says, we will always find someone, a bed for you somewhere. You've got to leave a little bit of suspense and uncertainty. It's all part, well, for me, it is of a pilgrimage, the suspense, the uncertainty. Some of it's got to be there, a little frisson of doubt. It's all part of the psychology until you realise, hmm, no, it's not as bad as I imagined. But it's bad for business. People won't be left in the street. Might just be a bit more expensive because you'd have to go to a private place or taxi forward, taxi back. But start midweek, start first or third week of the month, middle of a month. Even on the French route, you don't have these problems. They are massive, massive, apart from Zibiri. But then Laraswani is not that far on. Right. Primitivo, that happens in May. Or when you were mentioning Saria, Porto Marine is the choke point. If you've got places just before, just after Gonthar, go for the mid-stage stops. Saria itself, are people ever out without a bed in Saria? Supply and demand? I think not. They may not get into the municipal or the, it's the monastery there, isn't it? I've never stayed there as you leave. But Porto Marine is a choke point. Just stay before, walk on to Gonthar. Oh, yeah, and make a reservation if you send your luggage ahead. <laughs> People don't think they have to do that, and that's causing friction amongst owners and hospice as well, being used as left luggage drops. You wouldn't do that at home. Oh, I'm going to go to this city. I'll send my bag to this hotel, I'll just casually <laughs> wander into reception, pick it up and wander off again. Uh, no, don't do that. Paul, I was interested. You sent me some numbers. So... We focused on that so-called shoulder season, I guess, but which is now really the peak. But you noted that those who were walking in the summer were finding yes not full albergues. I can only speak on about the French route, although I know it does affect the Primitivo a little, not quite to such an extent. But the last few years and before COVID, apart from the hiatus that that caused, the numbers on the French route go down proportionately, not necessarily in real numbers, but in proportion to the total number on all routes. It's gone down 30% each year, which is noticeable. This year, it went down 40%. It is not 
busy in summer. Depends what you mean by busy. It's not <laughs> over busy. You will get a bed on the French route in summer. Certainly after the first couple of days, you'll get it where you want to. I go down to the bar here in a little village just east of Sagun. And some nights the village has a capacity of, say, maximum 40 between two alberges and a tourist flat, which pilgrims use. And there will be five or six people in town. That's all the way from certainly the middle of June right through to the end of September. So the perception of it being impossible, it's misleading. And the Alberghi own the commercial establishments. It's their business. They know we'll always have a chat and then drop the subject and talk about interesting things afterwards over a beer. They know the footfall that's coming through during the day. They know the money in the till in the evenings, the number of beds they haven't sold by the end of each day and it's gone down 40 percent i'm more than confident in saying if next year is the same as this year the actual numbers may go up but there will be no problem walking in the summer months the bigger towns the cities you may not be able to stay where you want because everywhere's got its iconic places and obviously the places like San Anton or San Nicolas, Puente Futero, these places that are destination accommodations because they offer something very special or very different or very historic. Yeah, unless you get there at 12 o'clock, you know, but that's always been the same. Five, 10 years ago, I walked past St. Nicholas. Oh no, there's a queue outside <laughs> and it's one o'clock in the afternoon. No, but I can't see it being a problem in the summer. If next year is the same as this year. Yeah. The accommodation is not a problem, but maybe the heat. <laughs> yeah. That is only on the French route. And Primitivo was getting pretty saturated in May and June. And although there are a lot more offerings there now than even a couple of years ago, it's gained in popularity. And you do have to walk further you won't necessarily find somewhere else just five kilometers ahead. And there are some bottleneck places, Boris and Tineo. To me, you use the word overblown in some pre-Zoom notes that we make. I think overblown. And only people who've had really bad problems will actually write and complain. And again, it's just the bad news makes the headlines. It's the way of the world. I have actually a question that's something that I would like to hear a little more discussion of. The resurgence of the traditional acogida and how you think going forward that's going to impact the Camino and who walks it and how is it going to work? I've read the announcements and I think Paul and Dave, you're both much more informed about this than I am. And it strikes me as a response to a lot of the problems with the bed race and the taxis and all of that. And I just wonder how you see it really working in this world where we're so surrounded by all of that trappings of bed race and taxis and luggage. So about traditional welcome or Akhachida traditionalia, it's still there. And I would say it's there as much as it always has been, except there are more offerings. So it's less prominent unless you've made plans you've planned to stay at the so-called traditional welcome albergues they've always been there but in past years since the last 20 years have been private offerings many of which by the way are offering traditional welcomes but at a higher price higher standard of facilities comfort and a lot of those are run by ex-pilgrims thinking of one in particular up the road in Mancia, two days up from here. And they're pilgrims, a couple of Madrid people on the Primitiva route, big number of people who've been pilgrims in the past, bought, rented, or somehow acquired an albergue. It's still there. I don't think the traditional welcome, whether it's donation-based or just enough to cover costs, hopefully, fixed price. It's not disappeared. It's just not even over, overshadows the wrong word, but there's so many other offerings now, it's not necessarily as visible as it was in the past. 
And people who come expecting Camino accommodation to be like any other exercise in finding a bed each night, just assume private offerings go on one of the websites, the bookings, the hospital world, something like that, and see what comes up. Most of the traditional welcome places, and certainly the donation places, and many public association advocates won't come up on those lists. People who've done their plans or looked around, just bought a guidebook, looked on one of the free apps, the Grumpfers, the not so much Eroski nowadays, and they'll see it's all there. But unless you know about it, you're not going to seek it out. Now, some people will drop onto it and say, I like this, this is different. Others will say, oh, it's not for me, but I tried it, I tried it, and they'll revert to a uh, private offering, but it's still there. There are a couple of factors that are working against it, and these are no great experts on this, but up on the northern route in Cantabria and even on Fistera Moshia route in Galicia, the regional authorities, whether it's health, tourism, or planning, whatever, they're saying, okay, all tourist accommodation must have beds made and ready when you get there. And in Cantabria, believe it or not, they're saying the maximum, maximum donation at a donation albergue can be two euros. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I've heard no more about that one, but I have seen the official document and some of the people who should know people heavily involved in that because it's their business or they've got to pay the bills. Two euros have to have the beds made. So there are pressures on providers of traditional, simple accommodation. And that's definitely been my growing perception when I speak with some hosts over the last few years, the sense of we are in danger. We are an endangered species because of legislation concerns. There's one emerging right now about how much information has to be documented and preserved for all accommodations in Spain. There's some places where they feel like private accommodations are actively lobbying for more legislation to kind of squeeze out the donativo competition. Hmm. There's also the concern that there are a lot of pilgrims or walkers or tourists who are taking advantage of the donativos as free or super cheap lodging as an alternative, especially in places, you know, where the alternatives are much more expensive. And so there are nights where the hosts barely can get by. And and obviously part of the traditional welcome is to be able to provide accommodation for people who can't afford it, who can't make an offering. Mm. But that needs to be balanced out by people who do, of course, contribute generously. Those are some of the concerns I've heard. And as Laurie mentioned, there is this recent consortium that's formed, the ATJ, of donativo-based traditional accommodations on the Norte and the Primitivo to try to come together. And it's a healthy list. It's encouraging to see how many mm. there are at the moment. And Dave, you do know that the list that's produced, some people choose not to be in on that ATJ listing for Norte and Primitivo for whatever reasons. So there are, in fact, more than appear on that list. For instance, Padre Ernesto Juemes is now on that list. But at yes. one time, he preferred not to be on it because ultra-low-cost riders, let's put it that way, make beelines for ATJ accommodations. And they always have done, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure this came up at the forum at some point this year, is the growing hostility, negativity in Santiago de Compostela about pilgrims, tourists, walkers, crowds. Seems like there's a movement growing in Santiago de Compostela. This has come up on the forum. I have not followed it in too great detail, but I believe that the new mayor of Santiago, who is from a Galician nationalist, that nationalist may not be the right term, but of a, of a BNG. Yeah, party is kind of taking up the cause here. I mean, I can understand the sentiment of the residents of Santiago, who when you look at the numbers, the population of Santiago compared to the number of tourists, it's like 
you think Barcelona's crowded? Well, Barcelona has millions of people. You know, you think Granada's crowded? Well, you know, Granada has a, a large space. Santiago is a small place with a just huge number of tourists, pilgrims, whatever you want. And I think the Airbnb crisis is affecting the affordability. What we see on the forum is just a lot of discussion of this, but I don't really have a sense of what can be done because it seems like an intractable problem that affects all sorts of popular tourist destinations. Yeah, but there's no question for anyone who has been in Santiago. I was in Santiago for the first time in 1970 and can't even describe the difference. But that's inevitable. That's true of every place I was in 1970. It's very different today. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I think there are taxing efforts that are being considered, regulations of Airbnbs, decrease in Airbnbs, maybe some sort of moratorium on hotel development. I don't know, but I don't begrudge the people of Santiago the opportunity to try at least to get their home back to a place that they can continue to enjoy, because I'm sure it is not enjoyable for many people right now at the peak points. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's always been like that, though. Middle Ages, Santiago, tiny town, <laughs> a million a year, half a million a year. Come on, you can't. Good for business, but the people serving the people with the money and the pilgrims, they must have been got really teed off with a million people a year arriving, or let's cut it down by a tenth, 100,000 a year, whatever the figure. And also the actual behavior, again, bad news makes the news. Right. One of the rowdiest, rowdiest groups to arrive in Santiago this year was one of the most religious groups, the PEJ. They were there, they were making noise all night, but they were carrying the crosses and it was the culmination of the pilgrimage. Okay, it was a fun night, but that was one of the rowdiest nights. So it's not all turning tables and shouting down by Mr. Rafferty's house and keeping everyone awake. (laughs) Also, like you say, Paul, it's the bad news that makes the headlines, but the photos of the people taking off their shirts and lying in Obradoiro or, or, you know, having this. What's wrong with that? (laughs) I I can't see a problem. I mean, they they tried to stop people having picnics. Like, do you have to ferret in your backpack without anyone seeing you to grab the last bit of something to eat? Surely you can take your shirt off and lean up against the, maybe not the cathedral, but go over the other side of the square. I think that's a bit unnecessary, but hey, it's not my call. And if that's what they want to do, yes, setting up trestle tables and what have you in that square, you know, maybe move those people on, tell them to go up to Alameda or somewhere. But what is worth mentioning is with the tourist rowdy enjoying themselves element, over-enjoying, is the scheme from the Shunta de Galicia of refunding 200 euros to any young person who's made a Camino through Galicia. And it has attracted boys and girls nights out type of, they don't want accommodations that close at 10. And likewise, when they want to get to Santiago, a bit like any big city, there's going to be some serious drinking and rowdiness, which that incidentally has now been extended into 2024 and the age limit's gone up to 30. Wow. They might just as well say, if you're a resident of Galicia, we'll give you 200 euros, you bought the Camino, or we'll refund you 200 euros afterwards. It'd be rather nice to see that the different shunters lay on, extend that down further east as well. Yeah. But that's going to bring in a much bigger number of people walking, not being a pilgrim, walking for different reasons and wanting different things and with different expectations. Mm-hmm. There's one other topic I'd love to throw out there and then like a wrap-up question. The one other topic that seems important and worth exploring is the furor surrounding the Cruz de Ferro mm. and what is happening there. And it's hard to fully grasp what the fight is about from a distance. And Paul, I I know you're closer to it. Can you explain what the situation is at the Cruz de Ferro? In a nutshell, yes. It's been described by the people who are really against it as an attack 
on one of the iconic locations of the French route, one that is protected. It's a UNESCO protected route. Works went ahead. It happened at Fonsebedon. It happened to be the same municipality that did it. And words are being bandied around like Disneyfication, taming, prettification, turning it into a garden, not leaving it wild, not leaving it as it should be. Can you describe the actual changes as they are proposed or as they're happening? Well, as they actually happened, and now they're having to be undone. That came to you the other day. First of all, the stones, the mementos that people leave there were all bulldozed into a ditch, retaining wall, zebra crossing. And then for those of us who are lucky enough to be able to picture up there, it used to be remote, wild. Okay, little place for cars to pull in opposite. And they built some pathways which flooded concrete. Local concrete magnet, who was the person behind the concreting over of Fonsibidon a few years back. And it really has got the old school up in arms and demonstrating last Sunday. Only 50, but there were some big names there from Spain, Italy, France were there. And they've reversed the decision and the works that have been done, it's got to be reinstated. Whether it will be is another matter. So they're going to tear up all the cement, like just bear it all out. Yeah, and they're going to replace it by planks more in keeping with with the area, with the environment up there. And the person behind this, well, there's two people. It's the mayor of the local municipality, Santa Colomba, down in the valley, because it's not big enough up on the top to have its own town council, obviously. There's also a non-Spanish benefactor who has put up big money for improvements at Justicera. And people are saying, hey, we're not from Spain. He lives down in Ponferrada now. I won't say which country he comes from, but he's put up big money. And between the two of them, they're making big changes to something that lots and lots of people don't want to see changed. On the forum, there has been a lot of discussion about this. And as is typically the case on the forum, a lot of issues get sort of conflated here because I think at least what I see in the debate on the forum is that there are those who oppose the re-engineering of the site. And then there are those who are indignant at the fact, which has been true for decades, as I understand it, that routinely a lot of the stuffed animals, the notes, the stones and everything are hauled away because if they weren't, (laughs) what it would look like is sort of beyond comprehension. And it's kind of for someone who's just who's new to the Camino, hearing for the first time that my stone is not going to be there for all eternity has provoked a, a really negative reaction that I think we need to separate in real terms from the, we need to separate the real issue, which is what should the environment look like, which is a different issue, I think, than what do we do with the many what I think are inappropriate things that are thrown on that pile there that make it look like, as some said on the forum and got very negative responses. But it, it, if you see some of the pictures at some of the points in time of what Cristofero looked like, you would have to say, it does look kind of like a trash heap. So that's a delicate balance there. Preserve the tradition, but at the same time, realize that there's got to be updates and removals or else it'll just be a trash heap. So I don't know how the discussion is going, Paul, in the area. Are those two things both part of the object of the traditionalists or are they fighting over one thing and not the other? Or Crutifero really brought it to a head, but it's the latest and the biggest in a long term. Fontebedon, of course, was it six years ago now, was noticed. The Opino mining area, maybe 10 years ago. This is just when I was coming into Camino World, so I'm not, I only have seen it in retrospect. And current things, that one's raising its head again. And the new one, industrial estate, Lavacoya, 
Camino going through another industrial estate. Okay, it's going around the edge of an elevated runway from the airport, but that's not too bad. You don't notice this and it's quite fun to see the planes, but you're not walking through a Maylede industrial estate or something. That's been on the boil for 10 years. That's just come up to new stages of permissions and new investment proposals. But I think Crucifer has brought it to a head. Irrespective of how you feel, this is just my point of view, irrespective of how you feel about critification, okay, is it making some places accessible to wheelchair users? In fact, Crucifero always was accessible because you have the roads up there. But it was a shot across the bows in general to say to other local authorities, look, it's UNESCO protected. You can't just go ahead without getting signed off, sealed and approved planning permission from at a community level, as in regional community level. Use some experts who are sympathetic to the Camino and who know, who've got experience in doing works around archaeological sites, for heaven's sake. Now, I'm not saying that Crucifero is an archaeological site, but at least don't just take a JCB in there and start shifting stones and putting down concrete before you've brought some people who may be used to restoring an environment to how it used to be. And it's putting a shot across the bows now of other developers saying, if you do this, we're going to come down and make it visible and hopefully stop it before it starts, or at least make sure you get technical expertise on board that knows what they're doing, not just riding roughshod and doing it in a cost-effective way. You know, listen to the users. Listen to the users. So Paul's mentioned a couple of times, you know, the bad news. We tend to focus on the bad news. And we have probably talked about a lot of things that people are unhappy about, things that are generating controversy related to the Camino. So let's wrap up here. What's one or two things that you think are worth being excited about and optimistic and positive related to the Camino 2023 or, or ongoing trends that have been unfolding over a few years? What's something that either of you thinks is a big positive? Well, for me, I think probably the biggest positive is the way in which some of the untraveled Caminos are really putting it out there to try to attract people to equally beautiful routes that can serve a lot of the same functions that the Camino Frances and the Primitivo and the Norte do, but without the huge crowds. I think the Olvidado, the Invierno, the Mosarabe from Almeria, all of these Caminos have very, very dedicated grassroots people these are not organizations that are imposed from on high. They are grassroots people on the ground who are really devoted to attracting people to come to their Caminos. It's just a wonderful opportunity for people who may not like all the crowds that they're seeing to try something else. There's good infrastructure. The infrastructure on the Olvidado has just improved dramatically. The Mosarabe from Almeria is just like lined with albergues. So there are options for people who want to give it a try. And I always try to encourage people to push the envelope a little bit, get out of your comfort zone. You can do this. There are people there on the ground that will help you and give it a try. So that I think that's really encouraging. Yeah, I go with that entirely. Can't really add much. A couple of detailed points. I can't see any big changes negatively coming. And yeah, the less traveled routes, how long ago was it when, if you mentioned Camino, people automatically thought French route. Look how that's changed. If people want to have a more holiday type Camino and still treat it as a Camino, do Porto. You can start walking from the airport. Numbers there, incidentally, have gone up, doubled this year over last year doubled. I can't see any big changes coming up. I'll probably be the last to see them. Oh, <laughs> it's too late. It's an unknown, isn't it? But with half a million, you're talking a lot. Sooner or later, there's going to be a flashpoint or a, not flashpoint, but 
a problem that can't be solved overnight or just jiggled around a bit. That's a lot of people, big, big commercial money now. And I'd say to the newcomers, well, come and see and ignore all these detailed points. Just come, because not many people go home again thinking, I didn't want this. That is the problem on the forums. And on going back to as we started this session about Facebook, newcomers to the media will see these interesting disputes and the bad news and think, what's going on there? I don't want to be part of bad news. And it might might just turn them off. But I think we've still got to keep it on there to retain the interest and keep these medium, the forum, the Facebook, maybe not TikTok, that's better suited to other things. Oh, who knows? Who knows? Camino fashion could become a topic of discussion. <laughs> Making sure that these details of squabbles, they're bigger than squabbles sometimes, and difficulties, that they don't dominate the forum. Otherwise, newcomers are going to get, unless they know how to read between the lines, or just they're going to come anyway, whatever we say on the forums, and they're, they're the pilgrims will come anyway just keeping a balance between it and occasionally just post up maybe some historical reference when a similar issue happened, Middle Ages, 1500s, um, new tax on beer in the taverns in 1500. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, it was just a few years ago. We were all locked up and now half a million pilgrims are back on the Camino. It's in one sense, yeah, it's crowded. In the other, it's fantastic because we were all isolated and divided for a long time. And now we're back and we're all coming back together and the magic of the Camino is still out there. And at a time period when our trust in one another is staggeringly low, being on pilgrimage seems like a good opportunity to work on building that back. So thank you both. This has been awesome. Really enjoyed it. And I think a lot of people will find it instructive. So thank you. So what's next for the Camino? Obviously, many of these trends will continue to make headlines in 2024 and beyond. We'll continue to hear concerns about the growing commercialization of the Camino the tension between more traditional pilgrims and those who are more oriented towards a touristic sort of experience. There will surely be more situations in which efforts framed as development, preservation, and accessibility will spur consternation about loss of tradition, tearing down of natural spaces, and quote-unquote disnification. I find myself wondering if there will ever be a serious reconsideration of the 100-kilometer requirement for a Compostela. I'm thinking about this in part through the lens of the growing list of pilgrimage routes outside of Spain that are being approved as starting points for a Camino, which will be the subject of an upcoming episode. It would be interesting, for example, if that requirement got bumped up to 200k, but more routes in different countries offered options for chipping away at that. I'm wondering, too, about some of the trends in pilgrim statistics. I was surprised to see how much the gap is narrowing between the Camino Frances and the Portugues. In 2024, roughly 50% of pilgrims walked the Frances, no shock. But 32% of pilgrims walked the Portugues interior and Costa combined. Will that gap continue to narrow? And are we going to see a third route emerge as the clear standout? Right now, the Norte Primitivo and Inglés are all bunched together, around 5%. But is the Invierno, for one, primed to explode over the next few years? And beyond that, American pilgrims have emerged as the top foreign group on the Camino. Obviously, we have a significant edge compared to our competition, given our population. Is this only going to continue to expand? My hunch is yes, over the next five years. Especially if The Way, Part 2, makes it into theaters. Finally, as a guidebook author, I'm wondering when we're going to see the first AI-generated guide start to take traction. With John Briarley's passing this year, 
the expanded use of apps among pilgrims, and that chat GPT boom, it certainly makes me curious about the future of the industry. And then, of course, the AI-generated podcasts are sure to follow. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Lori, a.k.a. Peregrina2000. She has probably made five new posts in Ivar's Camino forum since I've been recording this. You can find the forum at CaminoDeSantiago.me slash community. Thanks as well to Paul Garland. You can find him in the Camino de Santiago All Roots Facebook group, where his posting pace rivals Lori's. Keep your eyes peeled for him in Moratinos, too. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. Podcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. On to 20.